Thanks, Kenny and team. I really appreciate your ministry in helping us think well and express well, I guess, the, the desires of our heart as we enter again into Advent season. Can you believe Advent is already upon us? It, it's hard to believe for me. One of the things that I'm grateful for is that the way it works in America is that Advent usually comes right on the heels of Thanksgiving. I think that's very appropriate, right? We've just spent some time uh, with family and friends intentionally feasting and celebrating things that we have to be thankful for. So did you all have a nice Thanksgiving? Was it enjoyable? Yeah, I know there's lots to be giving thanks for, right? I'm seeing some new faces and uh, we have new uh, lives coming into being here through birth. We have, uh, yeah, friends showing up, relatives, neighbors, and it's been a wonderful time for us to, uh, to just sit back and to think. And we had a wonderful time in the Haugen household um, this last week, just celebrating Thanksgiving. The kids came home from college and brought a few extra people with them. And, and um, Thursday morning, I was out back. We, we decided to do our turkey on the grill this year. My, my wife chose for the first time to brine the turkey overnight, which was a really good move, by the way. And then we just said, yeah, instead of throwing it in the oven, we need the oven for other things like yams and and biscuits and things like that. Let's put the turkey on the grill outside. So I babysat that thing for about six hours. And as I did, I was listening to the radio. And a familiar song came on the radio. Maybe you know it, maybe you don't. It's by a group called Tears for Fears. (laughs) You're laughing, right? Now some of you are going, what is this? Some 80s song or something? That's exactly what this is. This is a song from 1985. Takes me right back to my junior or high school year in in high school. And uh, one of the lyrics of the verses that stuck out to me was this. the, the, The song goes like this. It's my own desire. It's my own remorse. Help me to decide. Help me make the most of freedom and of pleasure. Nothing ever lasts forever. Everybody wants to rule the world. That sound familiar? You can, can you hear the tune in your head? Some of you know it, some of you don't. But that really is what they're describing. That is the essence of our culture. That is the essence, really, of sin, right? We are all stu- seeking to rule our own worlds. We're seeking to make the most of pleasure. We're seeking to make, make the most of our freedom here in America for our own good, right? And that's the essence of sin, is it, it takes the affections of the heart and it turns them inward on ourselves rather than upward supremely toward God. That's how we were created. We're created to love, but because of sin, we start loving ourselves supremely. And the band's producer stated that this song was about a quest for power. And that really is the essence of sin. It's it's about pride. It's about independence, about superiority, about exerting our own will, even at the expense of others, causing relational damage. And if we're honest, we recognize this sort of thing even in our own lives, even within the church. We recognize that there's still this this desire in us that, by God's grace, we're striving against. But the desire is there to rule the world, to order our own circumstances for our own pleasure. Maybe you saw this in your Thanksgiving gathering this week. Maybe you saw it in the guests that showed up and were jockeying their own self in position to get that turkey leg. Or maybe in, in their attitude that they had about wanting to be served rather than to serve. 
You know, it shows up in a number of ways. Maybe you recognize it in yourself. Now, some of us had some unforeseen circumstances. I know the Clark family had a malfunctioning gas regulator that made them go from plan A of deep frying the turkey into plan B of smoking it. Uh, others of you, maybe your turkey got done earlier than you had planned, and now we need to adjust the, the meal, right? The wagonettes, that happened for you guys. Uh, maybe your guests didn't arrive on time. You know, you put, what was it for you? What was it for you that you had this plan of how your Thanksgiving day or how your life would go, and now the reality is, is that it's not meeting those expectations. And when we're faced with unmet expectations, what's our reaction? How do we respond? Do we seek to control our world? Do we seek to rule our world? What is it for you? How or when are you most tempted to rule your world. You see, today's passage, as we dive into Advent and as we look at John 1, today's passage is going to address that mindset directly. So turn with me in your Bibles to John chapter 1. And this Advent series is one where we will take the first 18 verses of John's gospel, the prologue, and we will unpack it. Like Kenny said, we will, it's not a very Christmassy package, but it's a theologically rich passage that helps us understand who this one is who would eventually take on flesh and come and become the, the person, the man that we know and that we see recorded here in the scriptures, the man Jesus. So turn with me to John 1 and let's read together the first 18 verses and then we'll pray and then we'll dive in. Reading from John 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which enlightens everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him. Yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John more witness about him. And cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. And from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. Father, we bow before you this morning and we give you thanks and we give you praise for you are a good and a loving God. 
You are the Lord of your creation, and your creation went astray. Your creation rebelled. And your response to that is that you moved into your creation. You came to your people. The Word took on flesh, and you dwelt among, and you laid down your life, and you paid the penalty of sin, all that we might have a restored relationship with you, our Creator God. Lord, this passage of Scripture is marvelous, and I pray that you would give us ears to hear as we read it over and over again in the coming weeks, and as we seek to wrap our minds around these truths, Lord, and incorporate them into our lives so that we might live as redeemed people, as reconciled people, as humble and grateful and obedient people. Lord, you are a God most worthy of our worship and our praise. We pray now that as we slow things down and as we read and reread and unpack the truths that are housed in verses 1 through 3, that, Lord, you would have your way among us and that you would teach us today by the power of your Holy Spirit. Come, Spirit, come. Give us ears to hear and eyes to see and that measure of faith necessary to order our lives humbly according to your word. It's in your name, Lord Jesus, that we pray. Amen. So this morning, our task is to focus on verses 1, 2, and 3. So I'm going to reread verse 1, and we'll see if we can tell what John really wants to communicate to the people that he's writing to. John writes, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. John uses a simple vocabulary, and he uses simple grammar. I like that. I'm not a very complicated guy. And in the first verse... He uses the word word three times. That makes it obvious to me that what he wants us to understand is that he's talking about this one that he calls the word. And in verse 14, he brings that up again and he says, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. So John really wants his readers and us today to understand who this one is that he calls the Word. So that becomes our task today. Now D.A. Carson, in his exposition of this passage, he asks and answers a question that I think will help us as we go through this Advent series. And that question is this, why does John use the word, Word? Why that word? Why the word, Word? Why not other words? You know, John, for John, using the word son to describe Jesus is, is high on his list, right? Listen to verse 114. He says, we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father. So understanding Jesus as the son of the father is important in our Christology. It's important in understanding who God is. Why didn't John just use the word son? Why did he use the word word? Then we think of probably the world's most famous verse from John, John 3.16, right? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. This idea of Jesus being the Son of God is huge. So why would John not use Son here? Why does he use the word word? 
In the original language that John wrote this is, is in Greek. That word is logos. And when, when we translate that word into English, it becomes word. So for us to understand why John chose this word, word, or this word that we translate as word, we need to understand a couple of the possible meanings of the word logos. One of them is, is that it pertains to the inner thoughts or the inner reasons or the science of a particular subject. And we see this meaning of logos reflected even in the English language in words like biology, right? Ology refers to logos. It's, it's this word or this science of bio or life, the study, the science of life. Or geology, the study or the science of land or the earth. Psychology, the study or science of the suke or the soul. And theology, the study or the science of the theos, which is God. So that's one of the meanings of, of the logos, is this inner thought or this, this deep meaning, this science behind any given topic. That might be part of what John is, is referring to here when he, when he refers to the second person of the Trinity as the word or as the logos. But there's another meaning of this word logos, and that's more of the flavor of an outward expression, a speech or a message. If a parent were lecturing to his child on why they should respect their elders, they would sum that up with maybe a sentence that would say, and that's my final word on that subject, right? That's my message to you about respecting your elders. We see this in Scripture as Paul writes, and he says, the word of the cross is foolishness. He's not literally referring to the word cross as being foolishness, but it's this message of Christ going to the cross and laying his life down on the cross that to the unbelieving world, that's a message of foolishness. So one of the meanings that we need to understand here as we understand why John chose the word word is this meaning of it being an outward expression. And since John alludes to, and he quotes from the Old Testament so regularly in his gospel, we also want to look at the Old Testament use of this idea of the Word of God. And in the Old Testament, the Word of the Lord is powerfully connected to three primary activities of God. The Word of the Lord in the Old Testament is connected to the activities of creation, of revelation, and of salvation. Pertaining to creation, listen to Psalm 33, verse 6. By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth, all their host. And we recall from the Genesis account of creation that God speaks and things come into existence. He says, let there be light, and the light shone in the darkness. God personally expresses himself in creation. God also personally expresses himself in revelation. We see this in passages like Isaiah 38, verses 4 and 5. Then the word of the Lord came to Isaiah, Go and say to Hezekiah, Thus says the Lord, the God of David your father, I have heard your prayer, and I have seen your tears. God clearly expresses himself to his people Israel verbally through the mouths of the prophets of the people like Isaiah and Jeremiah and others. And thirdly, the word of the Lord is associated with salvation. And we see this unpacked in a couple of passages, Psalm 107 being one of them. 
Then they cried to the Lord. This is the people of God. They cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. He sent out his word, and he healed them, and he delivered them from their destruction. Here we see the word of the Lord being sent forth by God, and it being part of their, the means by which these people are delivered and healed. We also see this in Isaiah 55, verses 10 and 11. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. Here God expresses himself in the act of salvation by promising that his word will accomplish the purpose for which he sent it. His word will establish and it will strengthen faith amongst his people. And this faith is personal and it will save them. So why does John use the word word? What John is saying here is that Jesus is God's ultimate personified expression of himself. Jesus, as being described by the word, is God's personal, ultimate expression of himself. Our God, the one true God, is a self-revealing God who wants to be known. And his best, most personal, most effective expression of himself is his word. It's the word. So if I, as a person, wanted to be known by you, I could do a couple of things. I could write you an email or send you a text message. And as you receive that email or text message, you would take note of the vocabulary that I use, which would probably be pretty simple like John's. <laughs> you would take note of the word order. You would take note of the grammar that I use. And you could tell a little bit by reading that message that I sent you, you, you could tell a little bit about who I am you would get an, a, a, a degree of understanding of who I am as a person. But perhaps I sent you a handwritten letter delivered by one of my friends. Now, in addition to the vocabulary and the word order and the grammar, you would see my handwriting. And you would perhaps get a, get a message from my friend who delivered it to you, especially if we were in junior high, about how much I really, really liked you. <laughs> right? There would be a little bit more of a revelation of me to you through a handwritten note delivered by a friend. Or simply I could walk up to your door and knock on it and invite you out to coffee. We could sit down face to face and have a conversation. And there you could hear my words and you could hear the inflection. You could see my facial expressions and you could get, pick up on all of these nonverbals that we don't otherwise get. It would be a more complete expression of who I am as we sat and talked and got to know one another. And this is what God is doing as he reveals himself to his people in the word. This word is the one who would eventually become flesh, take on flesh, and come and dwell amongst his people. God is expressing himself and has expressed himself in creation. God has expressed himself in revelation through the prophets. We now have that as the written word. And he 
is expressing himself in the person of Jesus Christ, in the Word. In the incarnation, God is expressing himself most clearly in a person, because God is a personal God. Therefore, John chooses to introduce this pre-incarnate person to us as the Word, God's ultimate personal expression of himself. And since the Word is God's clearest, most personal expression of Himself, then we need to know a little bit about this Word. We want to know who is this Word? What is He like? Who is this Word? And that's going to be the second question that we're going to seek to answer today. Who is this Word? Looking again at verse 1, John writes, In the beginning was the Word. And we find here that John is telling us that this Word is the eternal God. At the point of beginning, the Word was there. And the verb used here is in the imperfect tense, and it's not translated very helpfully by the English language that just kind of puts it in the past tense. In the beginning was the Word. But the Greek word here is in the imperfect tense, and the imperfect tense is used to describe a continual action that occurred in the past. So, if I were to tell you about the day that I lost my high school class ring in the waves at the pier at uh, Venice Beach, I would tell you that that was a day that I was out there body surfing and the waves were rolling in. So we're looking into the past, but the continuous action is that the waves were rolling in. You could use the imperfect tense to describe that day. That's what John uses here to describe the existence of the Word. In other words, we could say, in the beginning, the Word was already existing. He was existing. And it's the same verb in the tense that he uses at the end of verse 1 when he says, and the Word was God. It's a, he's looking back, but it's a continual action. So, John's really saying, what he really wants his readers to know, is that in the beginning, the Word was already existing, and He was already existing as God. This Word is God and has been God. He is the eternal God. So what does this have to do with our life? What's the, what's the pay dirt, if you will, about having this Word being the eternal God? There's an eternity of existence before creation. John calls the point of creation the beginning. And he says, in the beginning, at this point of creation, the Word was already existing. The Word had no beginning. So in thinking about our attempts to rule our world, in thinking about our tendencies to order our circumstances, who are we in light of Him? He is eternal. You are finite. He has always existed. You have a birthday. Now, there was a point in time in which the Word took on flesh. So we could say that He has a birthday too when Jesus was born, but that was not the beginning of His existence. When, when the Word took on flesh, the Word has always been in existence as God, and now He steps into time by taking on flesh. He is God, and you are not God. 
So our attempts to rule the world, they're truly rebellious acts of sin. And when we think of it this way, when, when we, we consider our sin being committed by a finite mortal against an infinite and an eternal God, doesn't that make sin seem foolish? It is. So let's stop striving to be God and start humbling ourselves, start resting in and submitting to the Word, the eternal God. Trying to take on the rightful role of eternal God as a mortal man or a woman is ridiculous. Yet we all do it. When we try to rule our world by striving for what we want, when we want it. When we do that, we create damage. We create relational damage. And this damage happens in two realms. It happens in the vertical realm, damage with God, our Creator. And it happens in the horizontal realm, damage in the relationships with other humans. Which brings us to our second point in answering the question, who is this word? This word is the relational God. He's a person. He's eternal God and a relational being. Look with me again at verse 1, the middle clause. And it says, and the word was with God. Now the word that John wrote here, this preposition that is translated into English as with, is a little bit richer than what our English can, can help us understand. This preposition in this particular construction speaks to proximity with someone or with something. That makes sense, right? That's how, that's how we understand the English word with. Therefore, um, our English translations, every one of them that I looked at, uses the word with to um, translate this word pros that, that is used. Now, to understand this, um, yesterday I went to get a haircut. And I took my son Josiah with me to get a haircut. We were together. We were in proximity with one another. We sat in the same place at adjacent chairs and we simultaneously got our haircut. We were together. We were with one another in this. We were in proximity. That's a bit of the flavor of what John is intending here, but it's richer than that. There's also a flavor of orientation toward someone or something. And this aspect of the preposition speaks about relationship. It speaks about the emotional or the spiritual presence with someone. Now this coming week on Thursday night, Lisa and I are going to hop a red-eye flight and we're going to fly up to North Dakota to visit our friends Troy and Jana. You might remember them as um, dear friends of mine that I have known since literally the month after I was born. I mean, we, we grew up on farms that were five miles apart. We grew up as childhood friends. Uh, we got married roughly at the same time. We started having children roughly at the same time. And this last fall, Troy and Jana lost their nine-year-old son in a tragic ATV accident. And we weren't able to go back there a couple of months ago for the memorial service. So we, we decided we wanted to go back there now to help them after everybody has left and just be with them. But our goal in being with them is much deeper than proximity. You see, we want to be spiritually with them. We want to be emotionally with them. We want them to know that our face is pointed in their direction, that we care about them. We want to ask them how their marriage is doing in light of this tragedy. We want to sit with them and weep with them. 
which proximity alone won't allow you to do. But if you're truly with somebody, if you're present with them, you'll feel the things that they feel. You'll rejoice at the things that cause them to rejoice. You'll weep at the things that cause them to weep. This is the with that Lisa and I want to be for Troy and Jana this next weekend. And this is the with that John is talking about here when he says the Word was with God. The Word is the eternal God and He is a relational God who has always existed in loving community with the other persons of the Trinity. He's with God. He's present with Him. He's oriented toward Him. He favors Him. It speaks to a relationship. We hear Jesus, the incarnate Word, give expression of this relational orientation with the Father as He prays in John 17. So in John 17, we have a prayer recorded here in this same Gospel that Jesus prays just hours before He goes to the cross. And as he prays, we'll be able to hear the affection and the love and the respect that he has for, for the other persons of the Trinity, particularly the Father. Reading from John 17, verse 1. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and he said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorified you on the earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed." Do you hear the eternal nature that Jesus has? Do you hear the homesickness in his heart as he prays to the Father and says, Lord, I want to be back with you. Glorify me with that same glory that I had before the world existed. I've been humbled. I've been obedient. I've accomplished the work that you sent me here to earth to do. Now bring me back into your presence. The Word exists in eternal, loving relationship with the Father and the Spirit. He always has, and He always will. And He displayed the glory together with the Father before anything was created, and His dis this glory was displayed in the creation, and then the creation fell. And the degree to which the, the creation reflected that glory was marred. All because Adam and Eve wanted to rule their own world. They believed the lie of the enemy and they wanted to rule their own world by having that piece of fruit that was good to the eyes. It's into this mess of sin and rebellion that the Father sends His Son, the eternal God, the relational God. And we can catch another glimpse of this relational heart of the Son as we continue to read from John 17, looking at verse 15 and beyond. Jesus says, I don't ask that you take them out of the world. Speaking of his disciples, he says, I don't ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. Skipping down to verse 20, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one. Just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they may also be in us, 
so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Do you hear the relational heart of Jesus as he's talking here, as he prays? He says, I want the world to believe. And in order for the world to believe, I want them to be in us. I want them to be in you and you in me and us in them. This relational God, the mission of the Word becoming flesh is to reconcile mankind back unto God, to restore that broken relationship. And nothing exclaims God's desire to be in loving relationship with His people like the Word becoming flesh. Dwelling among His people who did not know Him and dying on a cross to purchase their salvation, your salvation and my salvation. Salvation from the tyrannical desire that we all have to rule our own world. That's what we need to be delivered from. And looking at verse 2, it says, He was in the beginning with God. And again, John uses the imperfect tense to repeat what he's already said in verse 1. This verse speaks both to the eternal nature of the Word and to the relational nature of the word. John restates these ideas intentionally because what he will say next about the word hangs on these ideas. So if we were to restate all that John has said in verses 1 and 2, it would sound something like this. In the beginning, the word was already existing as God in loving relationship with God. That's what he wants his readers to know. We need to know that at the point of creation, the Word was already existing as God in loving relationship with God. It's because of this that Jesus can turn to the Jews who question Him when He's talking about having met Abraham. He can turn to them and said, Before Abraham was, I am. Because Jesus is the eternal Word incarnate. So what are the implications here for our lives about Jesus being this relational God? When the Word becomes flesh, it's God's ultimate expression of Himself, saying to His wandering children, I want you back. You have turned your back on me. You have rebelled. You have sinned. But I want you back. And I'm sending the Word to you. He's, he's inviting us. He's reminding us that He's not another one of those gods who just needs to be appeased. That's what the world religions are about. They manufacture gods who need to be appeased, and if we appease those gods, then everything will go well with us. That's not this God. This God is a God to be worshipped. He's a God to be trusted. He's a God to run to. He's a God to vent to when you're excited and call out to when you're in need. Because He has chosen you. So won't we let go of trying to rule our own world? Won't we do that and rest in Him? Won't we rest in the security of a loving relationship with a relational God? That's what He's inviting us into. And in verses 1 and 2, John has carefully chosen the words here in order that we might understand that the Word has always existed. And He's done so as God in relationship with God. 
And this phrase would ring in his reader's ears. This other phrase that he has repeated in verses 1 and 2, this phrase, in the beginning. That phrase would ring in his reader's ears and take them back to Genesis 1, the creation account that says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Which brings us to our third answer to the question, who is this word? This word is the creational God. Look with me at verse 3. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. The word is the one who made all that is. The author of the Hebrews makes this crystal clear in verse 2 when he says, But in these last days... He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed the heir of all things, and through whom He also created the world. So this Son, the eternal Word, took on flesh, become the man Jesus. He is the agent of creation. John could not state this more plainly or more strongly. He says it both positively. He says, all things were made through Him. And then he doubles his efforts and he says it in a negative way. And he says, without him was not anything made that was made. That means the word is the agent of creation. And he's not just another part of the creation. He's wholly other than that. He is the cause behind the creation. The uncaused caused that has always existed. He is the creational God. And he created for a reason. This God, the one who exists in eternal loving community, he created the universe to display his glory, not because he had any lack or sense of need. You know how we can tend to make unwise decisions when we feel like we're being unfulfilled? Like some, some young ladies will not be happy with the way their life is going and they'll say, if I only had a child, I'd have someone that could really, really love me. Right? We make unwise decisions and we, we do things. We take on responsibilities in order to find a sense of, of legitimacy, a sense of being, a, 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 an excuse to go on. That is not what is happening here when God creates. God doesn't create out of any sense of lack or any sense of, of need. Listen to Paul unpack this in his address to the Areopagus in Acts 17. Paul says this, The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. God created to bring people into loving community with himself, and this love compelled him to share what he had in himself. You know what it's like when you discover something fun? Maybe it's a ride at an amusement park. Maybe it's a a new kind of food at a restaurant. Whatever the case might be. What do you do? You want to share it with somebody, right? Look at this. This thing is so great. Come with me. Let's enjoy this together. When God created, it's an overflow of this loving relationship that He has always had within Himself in the Trinity. The Father loving and honoring the Son. The Son loving and honoring the Father and the Spirit. And the Spirit loving and honoring the Father and the Son. 
And it's this overflow of the fullness of God that caused them to create and to invite the created order to share in this eternal loving community. He created with a purpose. The world made intentionally by God for himself. We're created with a purpose. Listen to Colossians 1, 16 and 17. For by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. We exist as part of God's creation for a purpose. We have been created for Him, to glorify Him. And our identity is found only in Him. Now sin, our desire to to order our world or to rule our world, has many expressions where we seek to find our identity in other things. But we were created for a purpose, and that's to find our identity in the Creator God. And we are only most fulfilled when we order our lives in humble response to this God, in humble obedience to Him. How many of you have seen the kids' movie Toy Story? You know that one? Yeah? You know that little character Woody, right? That, that wooden cowboy? He's a toy, right? And he's a toy who belongs to who? To Andy. And there's a scene in there where he recognizes that his identity is wrapped up in not so much what he is, but in who he belongs to. And that's a bit of what's going on here. We are God's creation. And our identity is not in who we are in ourselves, but in who we belong to. We've been created by a God, by an eternal God, a loving God, and a relational God. And we are most fulfilled when we recognize that and find our identity in Him. So in light of that, how shall we respond to this word? There are three, three things that I've been praying about this week that I, that I want my heart to respond, and I want your hearts to respond in this way. I want us to respond with gratitude. I desire that we respond with humility. And I desire that we respond with obedience. We have a God who has stepped into our mess and has done all that needs to do to purchase our salvation. For that, we ought to be wonderfully, marvelously grateful. We have a God who's eternal. He never had a beginning. He'll never have an end. And His love for us will know no end in Christ. That also ought to fuel gratitude, but it should also fuel humility. We should stop striving to rule our own worlds, but recognize that in Him we live and we move and we have our own being. And we need to recognize that we're not our own. We've been created by God with a purpose. We've been purchased with the blood of Christ. He owns us. We have a purpose. We have our marching orders, and that is to make disciples as we ourselves are growing as disciples. And Jesus says, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. 
So let's grow as a people here at Grace Fullerton who are grateful, who are humble, and who are obedient, who seek to take seriously these marching orders that we've been given. So where is it that you need to grow today so that you will desire less to rule your own world and order yourself more fully, more completely, more properly under the Lordship of Christ? Do we need to grow in gratitude? Do we need to grow in humility? Do we need to grow in obedience? Let's take a few minutes to just sit and pray about this. And in a couple of minutes, I'll, I'll close us in prayer, and then Jesse will come up and lead us in a final song. Sit with the Lord and just ask Him where it is that He wants you to grow today. Father, we praise You for who You are. We thank You that You are the Lord of salvation, that You are the one who sent the Word, the eternal Word, into the earth. Thank You, Lord Jesus, that You humbly obeyed the Father by taking on flesh, being born as a human, becoming a servant of all, humbly obedient, even unto death, even the death on the cross. Thank You for the salvation that You purchased that is ours through faith in Christ. I pray Your blessing on each member who is here, Lord. I pray that You would minister to them and that by Your Spirit we would grow in humility, that we would grow in in gratitude, and that we would grow in obedience as a means of glorifying You and as a means of walking in the fullness of this salvation that is ours in Christ. We long for You. We long for Your return, Lord. Help us to be found faithful on that day. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.